0: Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, my fine friends. Welcome to the 15th episode of Season 9 of the Tom Petty Project podcast. I am your host, Kevin Brown. This is the weekly podcast that digs into the entire Tom Petty catalogue, song by song, album by album, and includes conversations with musicians, fans, and people connected with Tom along the way. I hope you're all enjoying the guest Ember guest episodes that I've been putting out uh, this month. I had a little bit of trouble with the edit of last week's episode, and I had to re-upload that, so... Thanks to my guest from last week, um, Will Porteous, who pointed that out to me. So that's up, re- re-uploaded on YouTube now. It's re-uploaded to all the uh, podcast apps. So anyone listen to this in the future, you probably won't even notice anything. I finished the last of those guest ember interviews yesterday with the amazing Trapper Shep. Uh, and that one will be available for you on December 29th. But this week's guest is another double act from The Waiting a Montana-based Tom Petty tribute band. Uh, Doc Wiley and Chris Gillette were wonderful fun and we chatted up a storm, so do make sure you check that one out uh, this Friday. Over on Facebook, we were discussing last week's track All the Wrong Reasons, and my pal Paul Roberts left the following comment. Must admit, I'm re-evaluating Great Wide Open. Yep, always love the two big songs, but there is much more here. The deep cuts are really impressive and there are some gems to come in the depths of side two. Thanks, Kev. Loving this season. Hey, And thanks, Paul, of course, and so am I. Um, I think I've commented some with it. Into the Great Wide Open, it's it's not an album that I've always sort of immediately reached for in the past, but in prepping for this season and listening to the songs you know, far more closely as I do, this is an incredible set of songs that really foreshadows the creative zenith Tom is about to hit in the next three years. JP Kaufman responded to Paul saying, it has always been my personal favorite. I got into petty during the heights of Full Moon Fever and was anticipating this one, listened nonstop for months and the Full Moon Fever to Wildflowers period with this and The Greatest Hits in the Middle really put Tom in the greatest songwriter of all time conversation. And I've definitely commented on this. The experience of working with Jeff Lynn and the Wilburys really seemed to unlock something in Tom, in my opinion. You know, his writing became noticeably freer and more natural, which is not to say that his writing wasn't great before that. You know, of course he was writing great songs, but it almost feels like the process became easier and more enjoyable from Full Moon Fever on. Over on Twitter, the wonderful Kelsey Van Halen has wandered into the feed from the Van Halen podcast that I've made a few guest appearances on. And she writes, absolutely love the guitars on this song. From acoustic to lead, such a beautiful song. And Viola Wildflower commented, one of my very, very favorite songs of Tom's. So thanks as always for your comments. Uh, You keep leaving them and I'll keep reading them. But as a last note before we start this week's episode proper, we do have to comment on the very sad news that we heard uh, Monday of this week that Jim Ladd, who inspired the song The Last DJ. Um, passed away uh, at the age of 75. Jim was a towering force in freeform radio, and as Tom always fought for the integrity of his art, so did Jim. Now, here's Jim talking about how much the song The Last
1: DJ meant him. Well, what I th- thought was that he, uh, here he had written this wonderful song, which is really a love song about radio, because he cares about radio. Okay, Some people have m- totally misinterpreted this song as a, an attack on radio when it is exactly the opposite, it's because he cares about radio. So I thought, man, this is great, you know, and good for you. And you, you know, you got it right, and can I hear it again? So he played it again, and this will tell you something about Tom Petty. Uh, I don't know six months or so before that he had been at the Museum of Television and Radio and participated in a seminar on the loss of Freeform Radio and he told me you know Jim I had this song then but I didn't bring it because I didn't want it to appear in any way like I was trying to hype a record when I was there to talk about radio and this is before he played the song and it didn't I didn't get what he was saying and then he plays the song and I went oh man but it did not click that it was about me at all I thought this is a you know a character and it's about radio and I was thrilled with that. And then on the way home, the engineer and producer that was with me because I was there to do an interview with Tom Petty, and I'm driving home and they go, well, What'd you think about that song? And I went, Well, God, it was great, didn't you think so? It was about radio and They said, It was about you, you idiot. <laughs> I went, No. They said, What are you nuts? So you know I just it didn't click because I didn't imagine you know and Tom didn't say it you know and then when it became apparent to me that I and again I want to phrase this correctly that I think I may it may have been inspired by me how's that uh, it's not me but it, I may have inspired the song if that's true I'm very grateful and then what he says which I won't repeat but anybody who cares to look on the new album, The Last DJ, get the liner notes and see what he wrote. Uh, I'm very proud of that.
0: And the album sort of credits he's talking about there simply reads, Jim Ladd, for his inspiration and courage. Today's episode looks at the second track from Side 2 of Into the Great Wide Open, Too Good to Be True. Go check out the episode notes for a link to the song if you want to listen to it before we get into it. Too Good To Be True was actually released as a single in the UK and Germany. And perhaps surprisingly, it was the highest charting single from the album in the former. In Germany, the single didn't chart at all. But regardless, it did receive a decent amount of radio play back in Blighty. Um, The song was a virtual ever-present on the tour for the album, but was never played again live after that. In conversations with Tom Petty, Tom mentions to author Paul Zolo that in our last gig, uh, where we were purposely looking for odd things to do, that one came out and we played it for a bit. And I really like it. So again, another track that maybe could have been aired sometime later in the setlist, but for whatever reason, just didn't make the cut. So let's talk about the key, because this song is in F minor. When you listen to it, if you play along with it, it's in F minor, but it's definitely played in an E minor shape. Um, normally, it would be the case that you'd just capo on the first fret to move the song up a semitone, but I did read on a Guitar Tab website that the author there thinks that the song's actually played in E minor with no capo, and then the tape sped up to be at that higher key. Now, We know that Tom wasn't averse to using that trick to get a slightly different sound, and I think there's a couple of tracks from either Hard Promises or Long After Dark that use that technique. I'd have to go back and check, but I think that's right. Um, And as my pal Randy Woods told me when I asked him how he thought this might have been achieved, he pointed out that a capo won't have exactly the same tone as playing the open strings. So there's every chance that the Guitar Tab website is right, and the track was sped up before the vocals were added, uh, so that it could be sung in F minor rather than E minor, but keep that open chord voicing on the guitar. And look, if I ever get a chance to speak to Jeff Lynn, and if anyone knows Jeff Lynn, tell him I want to speak to him. And maybe ask him about that one. The intro to this one is a nice, faded-in synth swell that is matched by a reversed cymbal. I don't think Stan Lynch is playing a swell there. It definitely sounds like a, a reversed cymbal. So basically all that is is you record a cymbal and then essentially just play it backwards in the mix. So if you think about the attack of a cymbal and then the decay, you just reverse that. And here is what that sounds like. Um, The kick snare pattern is pretty straightforward and there's a sort of a splashy cymbal being played on the first beat of every four bars. There are also some claves added to the percussion on every second bar that play on the three-and and and the four-and. So again, those wood blocks that you hear, like I said, I'm pretty sure that's a clave because it's got a really nice resonance to it. And they're heavily processed and affected. And I'll talk about that maybe a little more later on as we hear them very distinctly at a certain point in the song. The bass also drives this track more than maybe anything on Full Moon Fever or Into the Great Wide Open so far. It's a lovely full tone that Howie Epstein is playing, just stepping up and down over those root notes. As always, there are multiple guitars here, an acoustic and a very, very slightly distorted electric, both playing a a fairly basic strumming pattern. And it's hard to hear exactly what each part is doing, but the acoustic sounds like it's playing that. It's just strumming. And then I think the electric's strumming also, but adding in some passing notes in between the chords. Uh, It's all very dark. It's all very mysterious, and it's a wonderful intro section to this song. The verses simply follow this up-down chord progression as Tom croons out the vocals. There's a neat little piece of arrangement here, though, in that the transition to the chorus comes sooner than expected and without any real build or push. There's no drum fill. There's no sort of didn't you know. There's no extra instrumentation coming in. There's no no big cymbal hit. Um, we just go straight into the chorus. Now, each line of the verse is sung over four bars, but we only get three lines rather than the four we might expect. So total in the verse of twelve bars. The kick-snare pattern, once the chorus comes in, changes up and moves to the snare playing each beat of the bar, uh, and the kick playing on the second beat and the 3 and so the second beat and between the third and fourth beats. The chorus then messes with the structure a little further by having the repeated line It was too good to be true sung over two bars instead of four, but again repeated three times before an additional bar leads us back into the main chord progression. So this means that the verse as a whole is 12 bars and the chorus is seven. So we've got a 19-bar sort of uh, verse-chorus pair there, which is, again, just a little bit unusual. Coming out of the chorus, we then get that main progression for four bars with that three-note ascending lick leading us into the second verse. There's another nice little production touch uh, here at the end of the line, Everything That She Dared to Dream, with a big vocal effect, reverb and delay, and possibly some phaser on there or something as well. Um, It gives that last word, this big sort of ethereal, otherworldly feel. There are also a couple of synth notes after the words outside her door that are added in and just contribute to this uneasy back and forth progression. The second chorus proceeds just like the first, and as I didn't mention this since the last time around, you can hear them here playing some broken chords over top of the guitars, again to just add to the moodiness of this uh, this section. The main progression then plays a game for four bars, but the acoustic guitar is panned over into the left channel so that you can hear it a little more brightly, uh, before Stan Lynch plays some quarter notes on the toms to lead us into the bridge, which plays out for eight bars. So we've had 12 bars, we've had seven bars in the part, and now we're getting eight bars. Um, We get some additional oohs vocalised here, and then some great jangling chords on the electric guitar to complement the rock-steady acoustic strumming before the song transitions back into that familiar, pensive section, which Mike Campbell plays a solo over top of. And this solo has a very spontaneous feel to it, you know, compared to the very measured, very precisely arranged part in, say, Dark of the Sun. You know, this one feels more organic, it's a little bit more angular, it's a wee bit more jagged. Um, The synth's really washing over this section too, especially as the solo leads back out into the last verse. And here we have some fantastic little guitar licks added in by Mike Campbell, as well as what sounds like a little bit of piano after the second line. This last chorus really hangs on that last chord, and rather than being seven bars, it's pulled out to (laughs) ten. Okay, folks, it's time for some petty trivia. According to setlist.fm, eight of the 15 songs from Echo were never played live. So your question from last week was this. Which track from the album was played the most in concert? Was it A, Echo, B, Free Girl Now, C, Room at the Top, or D, Swinging? Well, the title track, Echo, was only played once on March 13th, 1999, during the Heartbreakers' second sort of mini Fillmore residency. Um, it's hardly surprising that the heart-wrenching ballad was not a fixture in the setlist, as I imagine it was tough for Tom to think about, let alone sing those lyrics. Free Girl Now was played 45 times on the Echo Tour and once in 2001, while Room at the Top was played 39 times all on the Echo Tour in 1999. So your answer is... Swingin', which was virtually ever-present on the Echo Tour usually being performed as the fourth song after Breakdown. And in all, the song was performed 62 times by the Heartbreakers, with its last performance coming at Forest Hill Stadium in Queens, New York, on July 26th, 2017, as part of the 40th anniversary tour. Your question for this week is this. Other than Learning to Fly, which single from Into the Great Wide Open reached number one on the US rock chart? Was it A, Into the Great Wide Open, B, Out in the Cold, C, Kings Highway, or D, Making Some Noise. Okay, back to the song. After this last chorus, we get a final Too Good To Be True from Tom, and we head into the main progression again, with Mike Campbell adding a couple of guitar noodles before the song ends on a big open chord. ¶¶ or so you think. After that chord trails off over four bars, just as you think the song is finished, the clave strike again and the song comes back in, allowing Mike Campbell and Ben Tench to trade licks on the guitar and keyboards. You can really hear the effects on that clave there too, which I think are exaggerated in this section. It sounds like it's got a massive spring reverb, um, as well as delay, definitely, and again, there's a goodness only knows, probably some echo on there. Um, there are also multiple additional parts in this section And before we start to fade out with around 15 seconds left. Now, this is where I have to hold up my hands and say that I don't know if this false ending is the right production choice. That last wonderful chord chimes right around 3 minutes and 4 seconds. And the song's 3 minutes and 58 seconds long. And really, other than some instrumental noodling, nothing else happens. If I'd had the production reins, I would probably have added some of that noodling into an 8 or maybe even a 12 bar outro before ending on that fantastic chord. So I'm going to try a different edit of this just to see what it sounds like and I'll throw it into the episode notes. Yes, it's a cool fault stop. We all love a fault stop, don't we? But it's just that when it comes back in, I don't think the final almost 50 seconds really add anything much to the song. So that's most definitely a personal preference for me and don't be too mad at me suggesting that this could have been edited differently. When author Paul Zolo says of that last chord that he can't figure it out, Tom replies, yeah, that's one of my mystery chords of which Jeff says, I didn't even know that chord existed. He goes on to mention that I use a lot of variations on chords on the guitar. I've got my own way of doing it and playing and voicing the chords. I think I just hit that chord and it's probably not a proper chord, but it made the right sound. I'm sure that's what that chord was, just a happy accident. When Paul asks Tom whether Benmont would know what the chord is, Tom replies, oh yeah, there's nothing he couldn't figure out. And I do find it interesting that Tom would regard what he played as, you know, quote-unquote, not a proper chord, because really... I don't know if there's any such thing. I mean, music theorists could probably pick me up on that and tell me I'm wrong, but you can play basically any combination of notes, and it's a chord of some description. Now, whether it's pleasing or right for the song is entirely a different matter. In this song, that F7sus4, which is what the chord chart I found says it is, or well, it would be E7sus4 the way you would play it. Um, That's what it says it is, and when I play it, it sounds right. The lyrics in this one fall into that category of very loosely narrated story songs for me. We just know that this is a female lead in a short story. We get the feeling that she is right on the edge of realizing a a long-held dream that finally looks to be coming true. And if you read the lyrics in the verses in isolation, they do tell a story of sort of quiet confidence and quiet hope. Her imagination ran wild. Could this really happen to me? So that switches, you know, third to first person perspective there. She could barely hold back the tears. And they would obviously be tears of joy. Everything that she'd waited for, everything she dared to dream, suddenly was outside her door. And then finally, morning on the outskirts of town, sitting in the traffic alone, you don't know what it means to be free. And that last line seems telling, and that it insinuates that the character, she, did not feel free up to this point. So whether that was a relationship, or a job, or a more physical sort of malady, that build towards that last line really sets up that story very nicely. And if we treat this as a movie or a play, the bridge section almost acts as a flashback to a point before the clean breakers happened. There was no talk of giving in. And just as Hope was wearing thin, her eyes were like a child again. Too good to be true. And the addition of too good to be true here is really clever because you can read those two lines together as being descriptive of the child's eyes or, metaphorically, her aspirations. The lyrics in the chorus, though, undercut this hopefulness, I think. It was too good to be true. As the old saying goes, if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. So maybe if this was a screenplay, we'd see the protagonist's point of view being increasingly positive and upbeat while we also know that there's a freight train heading her way that she hasn't seen yet. It could also be a more subconscious inner monologue playing out in the main character's mind, I suppose. You know, that little voice saying that this can't possibly be realistic, um, and that, you know, you don't believe that you deserve what good fortune is coming your way. You know what? Maybe she's the girl who's going to be picked up in King's Highway. Maybe the thing she's finally managed to break free from is a relationship with a self-obsessed movie star who's been pulled into a world of glamour and glitz. Maybe, just maybe... I'm massively overthinking this, but it sure is fun to connect dots and build out the narrative in your own mind, isn't it? And I'm not going to make any apology for that. Okay, Pettyheads, that's it for this week. Um, Too Good to Be True is, again, very simple for the most part. It's a broody minor chord song that, following all the wrong reasons, really changes the mood of the album. Um, It's another song that feels like California to me. You know, it always has. It's another road song in a way. Like it's got that, it's got space to it. It feels like, it feels big. It feels like open space. Um, And again, you can sort of see the Pacific Coast Highway at dusk in your mind's eye and the protagonist of the song driving through the warm summer air to the outskirts of LA. I don't think this is the strongest song on the album, but it has a charm to it that always makes me enjoy it. And again, I think it really works where it's sequenced. Um, I'm still not 100% convinced about that false ending, or more specifically, the just about a minute of repetition that follows it, but it's not enough to really knock this song too far down the ladder for me. I do think it's arguably the weakest track on the album, but it definitely isn't a dud. So I'm going to give Too Good To Be True an uncertain, wavering 7 out of 10. Because I think it's a strong lyric, and I do like the slightly unusual bar counts in the verse and chorus. The Tom Petty Project is a proud member of the Deep Dive Podcast Network. Go check us out on Twitter at Deep Dive Podnet, and I'm sure you'll find someone or something there that you like to listen to. Uh, You can also check out my other podcasts, uh, Seaside Pod Review, a Queen podcast that I do with my very best friend, Randy Woods, who, incidentally, as if you don't know, performs all the music that you hear in this podcast, including the theme which he wrote and performed and sent to me without me even asking him to. Um, also go check out the ultimate catalogue clash that I host with the hardest working man in podcasting Corey Morissette we just finished up this week um, season one we've wrapped up Phil Collins Hero Genesis and we are heading into 90s Metallica which is way outside my comfort zone way outside what I listen to Um, so I'm having a lot of fun digging into a band that I would have always said that I don't really like um, and learning a bit more about their music Don't forget to follow me on Facebook, Instagram, threads, and YouTube at The Tom Petty Project and on Twitter at Tom Petty Project. Go follow, like, subscribe, do all those things, and please leave ratings or reviews or any of those kinds of things. Um, They do help sort of bump up the podcast and get it into other people's ears. Keep talking to me on social media, and I'll keep reading out your comments on the show. Um, As your weekly reminder, The Tom Petty Project is not affiliated with The Tom Petty Estate in any way. And when you're looking for Tom's music, please visit official streaming platforms or go to your local independent record seller to grab some actual physical media and support local businesses. Again folks, Jeff Bezos doesn't need your money. The guy's a multi-billionaire you know what he could he could lose 50 percent of his wealth, pay his workers all of his workers twice as much and he'd still be a billionaire. Um, so go to a real store, go buy actual you know physical media um, If you're looking for official merch, please go to tompeddy.com and if you're looking for merchandise for this show, go to tompeddyproject.com don't forget to check out the Tom Petty Nation and Tom Petty Fans Forever groups on Facebook and check out Tom Petty Radio on SiriusXM. Um, until we meet again next week, keep listening to and sharing Tom's music. Try to be kind. Try to say I love you to someone at least once a day. Stay safe and healthy and I'll be back with you next week to talk about the next track on side two of Into the Great Wide Open out in the cold. Bye-bye. <music>